Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Getting ready this morning. Uh, we are in Psalm 96. I, no- I noticed that um, the spitting zone is empty, so maybe I have that reputation, but I think everybody's looking pretty safe this morning. Um, yeah, I, I, thank you, David. Uh, we, it's all, one of the things that we have been doing a lot this summer is missions. Uh, we have been uh, to Moscow. Pastor Sean is gone right now on, on a mission trip. And our youth went to camp where they heard the gospel, and a couple of them responded in salvation and faith. So one of the questions that, that I always, and this is maybe just a reminder for us, is why do we bother with missions? What is the end result of missions? Why is it that we go about that? So it, as, because of that, I think we're going to spend some time in Psalm 96. And this is just a reminder. I think you already know this, but it's good to remind ourselves why we do missions. So let's read Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So this psalm has four parts to it. Uh, there are four different sections here, here. And so we're just going to, this morning, just kind of track through this psalm, follow the psalmist's train of, train of thought. So the first section that we see is in verses 1 through 3, and it's a call to, the wor- call to worship. There are six imperatives here, six things that we are to do. Three, three times we are told to sing to the Lord. One time we're told to bless, another time we're told to tell of His salvation, and another time we're told to declare His glory. So obviously the, the thing the psalmist really wants us to get is to sing, is to praise God through singing. Now, we all know, I think we know this intuitively, that worship is not only expressed in, in song, but in other, other areas in life as well. Actually, all of life is to be a form of worship to God, but one of the things that singing does is it captures up our, our minds, our imaginations, and our affections to God. And that's why I, every morning we sing and we praise God through song because it has a way of carrying all of our being to praise God. What, but the psalmist at the very beginning, it sings to the Lord a new song. So does that mean that every time we get together we have to sing something new? Well, obviously not because we just sang some of the songs that we, that we sing here. But I think that there's a new song that this is ultimately pointing through. Something that, that is in Revelation 5, 9 through 10. 
And this is the new song that we will all sing. Worthy are you, this is speaking of Jesus as the Lamb of God, to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we're to sing to the Lamb for who was slain for our sins. The ransom of people through the name of Jesus. All peoples, not, not just some peoples, but all peoples and all tribes and all languages. And so we are to sing of our redemption in Christ. However, this command isn't just for us, just for the people of God, but also for the nations around the earth. All the earth is to sing to the Lord. People are to bless his name. Now, in the Near Eastern context, when we speak of a person's name, we're speaking of their character, their reputation. Uh, it's, it's kind of the sum of all they are. So we're to praise and to bless God's name. And, and then we are also to sing of his salvation. Now, this salvation, remember, this is in the Old Testament. Jesus has not come yet. So my guess is they're probably referring to their salvation in the Exodus. When they left Egypt, they were in bondage and slavery. So they were to say among the nations, like, look what the Lord rescued us from. He rescued us from Egypt and delivered us into the promised land. Now, if that's the salvation that Israel had to tell the nations, how much more so the salvation that we have to proclaim, that Christ died, died on our behalf so that we can be, have access to God. And so I, I get I get excited about that. Like, man, if Israel had that this year, man, we got this better salvation to, to, to sing and to tell people about. And this all points us towards the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus, some of Jesus' last words. Let me just remind you what that says. This is Jesus talking. So all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One of the important things that I, that I gather from this is that God's salvation is worth declaring among all nations, all peoples, all tribes, and all tongues. I think, and I heard this statistic not too long ago from, from Matt Carter when I, was, when I was at summer camp with the youth, there's roughly about 6 billion people in the world right now that don't know Christ. I mean, that number is just huge. I, I can't even imagine how... how Amazing the need is for us to be doing this. But the, but the ultimate outcome of this, and this is what the psalmist is hinting at, is the worship and praise of God, is that God, that the, that God would get more worship. That's the glory and worship of Him. And that's the goal of missions, is to make more worshipers. I mean, that's what the psalmist is demonstrating here. It's like, look, we're going to sing to the Lord because of His salvation, and because of His salvation, we can sing to Him. It's all about the praise of Him. I think the psalmist anticipates what... John sees in Revelation 7, 9, 9, and 12, 9 through 12. So this is what John sees. After this I looked, and behold, the great multitude that no one could number, from every tribe, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So, that, I mean, so that's the picture that John sees. That's where missions ends, is in Revelation 7. Uh, i got to thank John Piper for pointing this out to me in, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. If you are interested in missions at all, I think it's one of those books that I think all Christians should read. It's one of those things that just reminds us about why it is that we are 
about that. So that's why we go to Moscow, go to India, go to Fort Collins, Sterling, uh, Denver, around the world. That's why we do these things, is because we want to, for God to get more worshipers. And let me remind you what we as a church has decided as our mission statement and some of our values. And this is taken directly from our website, so you know this is available. I'm not making this up. This is what we had desired decided as a church and as leadership, and I think it's important for us to remember this is why we are here. So this is our mission statement. So Emmanuel Baptist Church exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission as we fulfill the Acts 1-8 vision. And so therefore, some of our values, everything we do as a church must be for God's glory alone. So that means everything that we do is, is for God's, God's sake, not for our sake. The greatest message that we can ever declare, and this is one, another one, is the gospel. The wonderful news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins found him and, and him alone. And therefore, God has given us the non, non, non-negotiable mandate to make disciples of all nations, which means that we are serious about reaching the lost and equipping the saved. In Acts 1-8, we see God's ultimate vision of the church being empowered by the Holy Spirit to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and disciple for God's great commission, not only in northeastern Colorado, but around the globe, especially among unreached people groups. Unreached people groups basically means this, that they they have no access to the gospel. That's one of the reasons we, we adopted the Bogota people group, because they have no access to the gospel. So we are about trying to give them access to the gospel and encouraging that. So, as you can see in our church vision and mission statement, that we have incorporated this as a part of our identity. I mean, this is who we are as a church, is we are about sending people to the far ends of the earth, which is why Sean is gone, because we are about God having more worshipers. Jesus would say this in John four twenty three and 24, But the hour is coming and is, not, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. It says that God is seeking people to worship him. And that they are to worship him in spirit and truth. And the only way they can do that is when they respond to the gospel. Which is why it is, why it is important for us to do that. So God is the, great, the most glorious, most holy person and is most deserving of our worship. And we are to show other people how worthy our God is. And we are to, to declare his glory. And that's... That's one of the things that I think that, that we often forget is like, man, it's all about his glory and, and sending it out so that other people can join up and experience God in that way. Which leads to the next point in the psalm. So the psalmist lays it out. All right, calls us to worship. Okay, this is, we need to worship God. And then in verses 4 through 6, he explains to us why God is worthy to be praised. So that's the next section here. So why is God worthy to be praised? Well, in verses 4... 4 through 6, read that God is great and glorious. Anselm of Canterbury once described God as this, in this way, that God is a being in which nothing greater can be conceived. Now, I, I, when I first heard that in philosophy, I was like, what in the world does that mean? Basically, it means this. It means that imagine the greatest possible being that you ever could. All right, so, so if you have that picture in your, in your mind, you know, the greatest possible being that you could. All right, now, after you do that, God is greater than that even which you are imagining. And so when, when, when he said that, and I began to realize what Anselm was talking about, it's like, whoa, I mean, God, God is so awesome that I can't even conceive of how great he is. And that's, that when the Bible talks about his glory, his splendor, that word splendor in Hebrew, it means that the light and glory which God wears is king. 
Uh, and it's because of his glory and his splendor and his greatness that he is to be feared. We read that in verse, in verse, four, uh, in verse uh, 4, that he is to be feared above all gods. Um, our response ought to be that of Isaiah, when he had this picture of the glory of God in Isaiah 6. So let's, let me read that to you, and I think it will be up on the screen as well. So in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the earth, whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. In Revelation, John would have similar visions as well. Uh, chapters 1, 4, and 7. John encounters the, the throne of God, and he fall, and he sees the resurrected Christ, the full the, uh, Christ in all his glory, and he falls as a dead man. See, I think Isaiah and John's visions, what they're demonstrating is that God is to be feared above all. Now, it's not fear in the sense of being terrified, but fear in the sense of having great awe and wonder at the person and character of God. So for who else is like him? Uh, with such beauty and splendor and magnific- magnificence. And when you think about God, it, and like a, that picture Anselm gave us, I mean, there is just no possible way that we can, can get away from not having an awe and wonder of him. As the psalmist quickly points out, is that God alone is the only God. Um, there's a play of words going, going on here in verse 5. So he says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. The word gods there is Elohim. And the word for worthless idols is Elohim. And he's like, look, really those Elohim, those, those gods, are really nothings. They're, they're worshiping these, these nothings. And he's, for indeed, and the scripture is clear on this, there is one God. As Deuteronomy 6.4 would say this. This was in like Israel's constitution, you could say. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God himself would clarify this even further. Isaiah 45.5 would say, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So not only is God most worthy and deserving of our worship, but he alone is God. Where else is our praise and worship to go? That is why to worship and to praise anything else is idolatry. The Bible has much to say about, about that particular sin. And as the, as the psalmist says in verse 5, the idols of the nations are nothing, they are worthless. And therefore, along with Israel, the nations are to join in in singing of this great God. For he alone is God. So, let me just kind of tell you where we've been so far. So, verses 1 through 3, we have the call to worship. Verses 4 through 6, we have why God is worthy to be worshipped. And then, verses 7 through 9, we have actual worship. So, it's like it's a, it's a building. So, we called the worship. We were told why we are to worship. And now, the psalmist finally worships in verses 7 through 9. The people are to respond to the beauty and splendor of God by praise. They are described to the Lord glory and strength, to bring offerings and worship. The whole earth is to tremble in fear of him. You see, it's not enough to just talk about God and to say, okay, you know, he's worthy to be worshipped without actually worshipping him, because that's a human thing. We do that a lot. We say, oh, you know, God's worth to be worshipped, and then we don't actually do it. You know, see, praise is not fully expressed until we actually do 
Praise God. I've read this quote, run across this quote several times in blogs and books of authors that I enjoy. Uh, and it's something by C.S. Lewis that he wrote in the Reflections of the Psalms. So I, I hope that this helps you when you're thinking about this. So I think we delight in the praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of com- compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it, it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then, to ha- and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify God, God is inviting us to enjoy him. So Lewis's point is this. And praise is incomplete until it is expressed. And so to fully delight in God is to therefore praise him. One of uh, Lewis's examples that he gives is that of a husband and wife. um, Or or lovers, I should say. But, you know, such as a a husband and wife. And this would seem kind of crazy, but I could let Julie assume I I love her through my my actions, through my deeds, you know, the things that I do, my behaviors. But if I don't actually tell Julie I love her, it's not fully completing itself. I must say those words to to complete my enjoyment and my love of her. And that's Lewis's point. You see, it has to work itself out in words. And that's why we, we praise God. So that is why when doing theology and contemplating the character of God, we have not done theology or that properly unless it leads us to praise God. But that's the point of theology, so that we can know God more deeply and more fully, so that we can praise him in a, in a much more better way. Paul is a great example of this. Uh, Romans is a book that has heavy, heavy doctrine. And it, Paul goes through systematically one thing after another. But at the end of one section in Romans eleven thirty three through 36, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So Paul is demonstrating it is not, it's impossible to consider doctrine and theology and the works and ways of God without praising him for who he is and what he has done. Our worship then ought to be one that is full of vibrancy, urgency, and delight. It ought to be a great joy to come together corporately and to worship God together as a group. Uh, may we be a people who are marked by great, by great joy in worship. And I I know some Sundays it may not seem like it, but man, I I hope that you realize, man, we get to come together and sing and to praise this great God. So that is what is going on here in the psalm. He calls us to worship. He he tells us why God is worthy to be worshipped. And then then there's a section of actual worship. Uh, The last section here talks about the coming judgment. Now this is one of those things, like when I was reading it, it was really strange thing. It's like I kind of it was like, why didn't he just end, in, you know, like in verse 10? I mean, it would have seemed to be a, a, good, boy, a good place to, to end the psalm. But then he goes on to talk about the coming judgment of God, because that doesn't really, to me, it doesn't sound like something that, to be really excited about. The psalmist says, when we read him, he's actually, he's talking about, let the heavens be glad because God's coming again in judgment. And I'm, 
that's a good thing? You know, is that something to be overjoyed about? Let me remind you of the context. Uh, in those days, to get justice, to get, the, to get the justice that you deserved, many times you would have to bribe, barter, and badger judge to get your justice. So if you had been wrong to get that, sometimes it required you to kind of go around the system in order to get the justice that, that was due you. So the psalmist here is expressing that he wants God to come back and to judge justly, for he wants things to be put right. Now, I too, now when I hear that, I too long for, that, for the day when Jesus comes and establishes rule and reign. For all the injustice in the world cannot continue. And if you turn on the news, you'll know what I mean. Scandals and cover-ups by world leaders, uh, human trafficking, abortion, extortion, uh, the oppression of women. Uh, indeed, there's much injustice. But the psalmist, similarly in his day, longs for the day when God will come and assert his kingdom, when he will establish his kingdom over all nations and all peoples. For when Jesus arrives, we will finally have a peaceful kingdom. And Jesus will return, as Acts 1.11 says. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. John also writes what's going to be happening in this coming judgment in Revelation 20, uh, starting in verse 11. I'd uh, go ahead and turn there, because it's a section I think I would like you guys to, to see. So Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will, be with, he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he, who is seated on the throne, said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So we read that when God, when Jesus returns, there will be a judgment of the living and the dead. There will be a final reckoning when Jesus will put all things right and new. So for the Christian, for the coming judgment of Christ, we long for it expectantly because we know, like it says in Romans 8, 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we can long for the, for, for the second coming of, God, of Christ because we know that our sins have already been judged in Christ. For one's wrongdoings are going to be judged in one of two ways. Either God will, will judge your sins on you or he will judge them in Christ. So for the one who refuses and ignores Christ, there remains, as Hebrews 10.27 says, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury 
of fire that will consume the adversary. And in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. For the one who is not in Christ, there is only terror of the upcoming judgment of God. That is not something to be looking forward to if you are not in Christ. Do not be like the Roman ruler Felix. Paul was, Paul was in trial and was in custody. And Felix would often call, call Paul to come talk to him just so he could kind of hear what Paul was saying. And when Paul began to reason about the coming judgment, Paul, uh, Felix would basically was freaking out and say, Get away from me. I don't want to hear about it anymore. So don't, don't ignore the, the truth that Jesus is coming to return in judgment. So for the Christian, we can sing for the coming of our Lord because we long for him to come and to make all things new. That's the part in Revelation 21, 1 through 5. It's about God returning and, and establishing the, the paradise, you could say, that we will enjoy. For, for, those of you, for those of us who are in Christ, that should also motivate us to worship so that people can, can, um, can share in that participation in heaven. And that is an urgent call to go and make more worshipers. For Christ could return at any moment. He could return an hour from now, for all we know. So it's an urgent call for us to go and to share the gospel. So don't procrastinate, Christian. Share with that person that you've been procrastinating with the gospel before we do not know when Christ will return. For you who are not in Christ, don't procrastinate, for you could face your judgment today. And that is not something to look forward to. Like I said in Hebrews, you can only fear it because of the, because of the judgment. But to psalm things up in this psalm, and just to kind of bring things to a close, the goal of missions is worship. That is, that is why we go about missions, is so that, that God will have more worshipers. The reason we declare his gospel to the ends of the earth is so that God will have more that will worship him in spirit and in truth. We ought to long for the day where we enter that scene in Revelation 7, and, and we read that every tribe, every nation, every tongue is seated before the, before the Lamb and praising him. And we ought to pray quickly, as John would say at the end of the Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus, for we long for that day when Jesus will come and establish his rule and make all things new. Now, let me close with a prayer from Valley of the Vision. Um, for those of you who don't know what this is, this is a collection of Puritan prayers, uh, guys like John Owen, Spurgeon, individuals like that. And uh, there's, it's a collection of their prayers. So let me close with one entitled, God's Cause. So, Sovereign God, your cause, not my own, engages my, engages my heart, and I appeal to you with greatest freedom to set up your kingdom in every place where Satan reigns. Glorify thyself, and I shall rejoice. For to bring honor to your name is my sole desire. I adore you, you that you are God, and long that others should know it, feel it, and rejoice in it. Oh, that all men might love and praise, and praise you, that you might have all glory from the intelligent world. Let sinners be brought to you, to you for your, your name. To the eye of reason, everything respecting the conversion of others is as dark as midnight. But you can accomplish great things. The, co- the cause is yours, and it is to your glory that men should be saved. And then he closes, and he says, God, use me how you would use me. Um, and whatever that happens to be, I want to be obedient to that. So this morning, we're going to do something a little different. A lot of times we talk about missions and praying for uh, missionaries. But uh, one of the things that I, I wanted to give us an opportunity to do a, as a group is to divide up in groups of four to six. Now, before you do that, let me kind of say what we're going to do. We're going to divide up in groups, and we're going to pray for some different issues. 
uh, and some different missions opportunities that we have around the world. Uh, for instance, we'll play for Pastor Sean. We'll take some, a few moments and pray for him, uh, the McDowells, and we'll just kind of go through some, some various missions opportunities that we have. So uh, when you're getting into your groups, I'd encourage you to get with some people who maybe aren't in your immediate family so you get to know a few other people and you can pray with them. So if you guys want to take the opportunity now to go ahead and find a group of four to six.